Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you turn, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad uh, that you are with us here today as we continue the story. And the title of today's study is Dare to Be a Daniel. Now, songs can describe from a particular generation what people were feeling and experiencing during that generation. For example, many of our great hymns of the faith, we just had a great hymn on heaven, and many of our hymns written about heaven were written during the Great Depression. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because during the Great Depression, people were like, you know what? I just want out of here. I just want to go to heaven. Number one song during World War II was I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas by Bing Crosby. Why? Because people just want to be home for Christmas. They just wanted their family home for Christmas. During the 1960s, the songs were about freedom and rebellion and independence. Well, let me ask you a question. What are the people thinking that wrote this particular song from Psalm 137, verses 1 through 6? By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Zion while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. These were people far from home, homesick people in a foreign culture, in a foreign country, wishing to be back home and not have their values under the assault of the new society and culture in which they found themselves. Well, in that group was a group of four young men, and the title of today's study is Daring to Be a Daniel, with Daniel and his three friends. Um, I don't know if you remember this from your Sunday school days. If you were in Sunday school as a kid, there was a song, Dare to Be a Daniel, Dare to Stand Alone, Dare to Have a Purpose Firm, Dare to Make It Known. How many of you remember that from your Sunday school days? You shouldn't have raised your hand because I'm going to have you sing it with me right now. Here we go. Let's give it a try. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. All right, that was our song from Sunday School. Uh, I, that's going to end up at 11.11 being a solo. I just have this uh, uh, feeling about that. And, and so we are looking at these uh, brave people that stood up and that were daring to be a Daniel. As you look at your study outline, the Babylonians took exiles to Babylon as early as 605 BC. There were actually three exiles from the Jewish Jewish people from Israel in Jerusalem to what is today the nation of Iraq, what was then called Babylon. And there were actually three times of exile into captivity. The first was in 605 BC, when kind of more the intellectuals, the upper class, the elites were taken, and it was that group that Daniel and his friends came from. Then eight years later, they showed up and dragged some of the middle class uh, back to Babylon. Then 11 years later, in 586 BC, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came back and he leveled the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, and take the, took the masses in exile back to Babylon. But Daniel and his friends were from this first group in 605 BC uh, from the elites. Nebuchadnezzar wanted the elite, the bright, and the young. See, he had this theory, which is a legitimate theory, that if you can 
reorient, if you can reprogram the younger generation, you can win the culture that follows. Now, there are good examples of this and bad examples of this. Here's a good example. Pastor Eric Holmstrom, pastor of our high schoolers, and Pastor Eric believes that if he can get the high schoolers on fire for Jesus, that the rest of the church will get more on fire for Jesus. And he's got biblical basis for this. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, let no one despise you because you're young. But be an example to the believers in the way you live and the way you talk and the things that you think about. So that's a good example. But here's a bad example. And that's Hitler with his Hitler youth. And he had millions of teenagers and children that were in his Hitler youth movement in which he began to program them for Nazism and thereby won a generation of the nation of Germany. Now this process, part of it, is the change of their names. You see here that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were taken from Jerusalem and renamed Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I confess to you that many times I just read that over uh, very quickly and and I just uh, think to myself, that's just natural. They change names. They had their names when they were, their Hebrew names when they were in Israel and now they get new Babylonian names now that they're in Babylon. But there's something much deeper going on here. If you look at these four names, they're good Jewish names. They end in either E-L, which is another name for God, L in the Hebrew, Daniel and Mishael, or A-H, which also refers to God of the Hebrew, Hananiah or Azariah. So these are good Jewish names, and they give them new names, new Babylonian names. Let me uh, share with you what's going on here. Uh, Daniel in the Hebrew means God is my judge is changed to Belteshazzar, which in the Babylonian language means Prince of Bel, or, and Bel was an honorary title for Marduk, who was the major god of the Babylonians. Hananiah, in the Hebrew, means Yahweh has been gracious, is changed to Shadrach, which in Babylonian means I am fearful of a god, god with a little g. Mishael, which in the Hebrew means who is what God is, is changed to Meshach, which in their language meant, I am despised, contemptible, humble before my God. Again, God with a little g. Azariah, which in the Hebrew means Yahweh has helped, is changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Uh, Nebo was one of the Babylonian gods. And so again, it is changed to a Babylonian name. Now we can see that the king had ordered that this reprogramming takes place. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. See, the creme de la creme of the younger generation. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Now, there's a three-part process going on here. First of all, to reprogram their intellect from the language and literature of the Jews and the Hebrews in, in Judea to the language and literature intellectually of the Babylonians. Part two was to change their religion. Uh, the food is something that we're going to talk about in just a moment and their diet. But part of this, you know how big and central it is to the Jewish faith uh, to eat kosher food. And so the next thing they went after was what they ate according to their dietary regulations connected with their religion. So to change the mindset, the worldview of the Hebrew worldview, the Jewish worldview to a Babylonian worldview. Then to change the Hebrew religion to a Babylonian religion. 
and then to change their identity from these Hebrew God-centered names to these Babylonian names. Now, these four teenage boys were strangers in a strange land. They were probably 15 or 16 years old, and now they come from Judea and uh, Jerusalem area, uh, kind of hicks from the sticks, and they end up in the most powerful city in the world at that time, the city of Babylon. And it must have been jaw-dropping to them. Archaeologists tell us that the walls of Babylon were 300 feet high. Can you imagine walls a football field high? And they were 85 feet thick. And they were 35 feet down into the ground so that a foreign army couldn't dig underneath the walls. It was truly one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a center for Satan worship as the pagan god Marduk was worshipped throughout Babylon. They had the, uh, the temple of Marduk, and it was collected with the Tower of Babylon, which possibly was connected with the Tower of Babel that we read about in the book of Genesis. There were 53 temples to the various gods scattered throughout Babylon. It was called the City of Gold. And here they walk in, and their mouths open, and their eyes get big, and here they are in Babylon. And when you're kind of from the backwoods, and you show up in the big city, the best thing is just kind of go with the flow. I remember first time Kimberly and I saw Los Angeles was when we flew out here to meet with the pastoral search committee. And uh, we were from church in Homer, New York, population 3,500. My wife was from Tully, uh, which I always used to tease her. There were more cows on her farm than there were people in her town. And that was almost true. And uh, then I was from Prince George County, rural, was part of Southern Virginia, near the North Carolina border. And we came to Los Angeles and we were just blown away. We were like, I can't believe it. There's Dodger Stadium and there's the Hollywood sign and there's Disneyland. And we were just blown away. And so it's these young men, teenagers in the big city and everything seems so much cooler in the big city. They must have thought, oh man, my parents back home seem so out of it. Babylon is so cool. Babylon's got so much style. Babylon's so flashy. Babylon's so attractive. Babylon is with it. And what I came from seems so out of date. Maybe the best thing is just to lay low and to go with the flow. I love this true story uh, from Mark Twain. When he left the Mississippi River boat that he worked on, he became a reporter out west in Carson City, Nevada. And while he was there, he wrote an old friend that Carson City was, quote, a den of booze, wild women, and 24-hour gambling. Certainly no place for a good Presbyterian. So I no longer am one, is what he wrote. (laughs) Now that's what these young men could have written home. Babylon is a den of booze, wild women, and 24 gambling. Certainly no place for a good Jewish boy, so I no longer am one. Just lay low. Go with the flow. Do you know that God in his word says that's exactly the situation we're in? We are exiles from heaven. That's our real home. As Nigel and Teresa were just singing, I got heaven on my mind. Anybody here got heaven on their mind? We're exiles here. We're in a foreign culture And so Peter writes to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, uh, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Paul writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, something I want us to notice about these four young men, and I think there's some lessons uh, for us, and there are certainly some lessons for me. First of all, they resisted bitterness. Can I make a confession to you? The older I get, sometimes the crankier I get about the culture in which I find myself. I find myself getting a little ornery, a little bit bitter about the assault on our Christian values and, and, and the challenges. And, and these young men had every reason. Not only did the culture be against their Jewish faith, but also they'd been dragged hundreds of miles from home. They had a right to be bitter. And yet they resisted bitterness. Number two, they always remained respectful. Can I make a confession to you? It is very easy to become sneering and disrespectful of the culture in which I find myself. And they, they remained a sense of respect and they avoided bitterness. And number three, uh, ultimately their hope was in God's word. That's where they kept their focus. Not on the bitterness against the culture around them or disrespecting the culture around them. They kept their eyes on heaven. They kept their focus on God's word. The prophet Jeremiah had given a prophecy that fulfilled amazingly accurate uh, that they would only be in captivity for 70 years and then they would go home. And they held on to that prophecy of Jeremiah and others. We're gonna be here for 70 years and then we're gonna go home. Now in the story this week, we have three stories in Daniel. And, and boy, be sure you read this chapter. It is such an interesting chapter. Some of the best stories in the Bible are in the book of Daniel. And there are three stories that show us how to live out God's agenda for our lives in a foreign culture, okay? And we're going to spend most of our time with the first one, the one on this whole diet thing. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time on the middle one. And then Daniel and the lion's den, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Either you've already read that in the story this past week, or you're going to read it in the coming week. But let's focus in on the first one. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. But Daniel resolved. Would you repeat those three words with me together? But Daniel resolved. This is the way that we stay followers of Christ. We, we think like our faith in the midst of a Babylonian society and culture is it takes resolve. To not swim upstream means that you will be swept downstream. It takes effort to swim upstream. You've got to have an inner resolve. But notice, inwardly, he's resolved but outwardly, he's flexible. He comes up with a creative alternative. He, he's he's um, discerning. He's, he's respectful. He's uh, kind of shrewd in the way he deals with his outside culture. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to David, Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Now, this is a very legitimate concern on this person's part. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. 
I just want to ask a question. What is our diet? How much of our diet is Babylonian? And how much of it is based on our faith? Are we watching the Babylonian quotient in what we watch on TV or the movies we go to or the music we listen to or the books we read or the gossip we engage in or the materialism we partake of? Are we watching the Babylonian portion of our diet? Now, you know what? When you live in Babylon, it's impossible to completely avoid it. I mean, you can get some Babylonian culture just by the billboards you see on the 10 freeway as you drive down, you know. But have you, have you kept it to a minimum and have you maximized your diet of this, God's word? Now I'm preaching to the choir because here you are on a Sunday, on a beautiful Sunday morning. You're here because you want to study God's word. You want to be challenged. That's why you're here. But you know what? Sunday morning's not enough. You need it every day. You need to be in this book. I mean, you'd be a part of a small group, a Sunday school class, a Bible study group where you have people around you to continue to challenge us to live with a diet of uh, the promised land, a heavenly diet of God's word to combat that Babylonian diet. We're like frogs in a kettle. How many of you are of an age that you would say you can't believe the stuff, you, you couldn't believe 30, 40 years ago what you're seeing happen in the world today? You know, and I'm getting to that age where I can say that, where I just can't believe what I'm seeing uh, get normalized today that I, it would have been un- inconceivable 30 or 40 years ago. Um, uh, media experts said that what you see in movie theaters that's edgier today is what you'll see on television 11 years from now. It's almost an 11 year cycle. What you say today in movies that's a bit over the line and edgier, uh, that, and there's some guides on that and guidelines on that, that's what your kids are going to turn on the TV and see at 4 in the afternoon or at 7 o'clock at night, 11 years from now. And so we're like frogs in the kettle, and the Babylonian culture around us is shaping us into its form, and we have got to resolve, like Daniel, that we will live according to the values of of God's word and the heaven that we're working, living our way towards rather than to the Babylon that we find ourselves in. Now, Daniel and his three friends are healthier and wiser than all the others. Next page of your study outline. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Daniel and his three friends are blessed by God as they live as strangers in Babylon. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Now notice, the lesson of this is not to be anti-intellectual or anti-academic. It's just through God's worldview, we should be gaining in knowledge and understanding, not just of theology or biblical wisdom, but all kinds of literature and all kinds of learning, but do it with a God-centered, biblical worldview. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time, set by the king to bring them into a service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. 
C.S. Lewis said, the reason we must have good philosophy is because there is bad philosophy. And one little aside is, you know, it's a fascinating thing in, in secular uh, institutions of higher learning across America today. You know where you'll find the most, the highest percentage of Christ followers is in the philosophy department. It's a fascinating thing going on in America today. That's where you'll see more and more followers of Christ. But let me give you a modern day uh, Daniel from our own church family. Put a picture up there, Talithia Williams. Talithia is one of our trustees here at our church. She and her husband Donald are one of our marriage mentors for our marriage mentoring ministry. Just a wonderful couple, wonderful family. And uh, Talithia is a math and statistics professor at Harvey Mudd uh, College over here in Claremont. And uh, do you know this past week, she became the first African-American woman to get tenured at Harvey Mudd. First one in history. That's, you know, engineering school, you know, you just didn't have as many females there, but she's the first African-American female to be tenured at, at Harvey Mudd. And you know, it's fascinating when I called her yesterday, just asked permission, you know, uh, to, to share this. Uh, she seemed particularly excited, found out later that I told her, I said, I'm preaching on Daniel and I want to use you as an example of a modern day Daniel. I f- come to find out later that uh, her maiden name was Daniel. And she's a vegetarian, so there you go, you know. Uh, so, at any rate, um, that's what we're talking about here. That, that we be, um, you know, ten times better in every area of wisdom and of understanding. Now, the next story we're just going to spend a few minutes on. Uh, Daniel's three friends refused to worship an idol of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's officials are jealous of Daniel's three friends and seek to trap them in a crime. You know, one of the evidences, I think, for the truthfulness of Judeo-Christian teaching is this irrational hatred in the world of Christians and of the Jewish people. You know, in some ways, maybe it makes sense with Christianity because we're the biggest movement in world history Biggest movement in the world today, fastest growing, continuing into the present. Fastest growing, biggest movement in world history. So we make a big target. 21 million followers of Jesus killed last year simply for following Jesus. And and so there is this hatred of followers of of Christ. And there is a great deal that is um, irrational in that. But you could at least maybe partially explain it because of our size and, and, um, and growth and influence. But, but with the Jewish people, it's just so irrational on that basis. They just came out with a research this past week, maybe you saw it on the news, where they did a poll of people around the world and found that one out of four people on planet Earth hate the Jewish people. Now what's, what's crazy about that is there's so few of them you know, I mean, there's what, 2.6 or 3 point whatever billion of us, but there's only 6 million of them in Israel, only 13.8 million, 6 million in Israel, 13.8 million worldwide. They peaked at 17 million in 1939, just before World War II, but because of the 6 million killed in the Holocaust, they went down to 11 million, and they've only grown from 11 million to 13.8 million in the last 70 years. They're now even a smaller portion of the world's population uh, than before. Uh, the, the nation of Israel 
is only the size of New Jersey, and, the, and it's only two-thirds of the population of New Jersey. Can you imagine asking people around the world and one out of four saying, we hate those people from New Jersey? I mean, Snooky is irritating, but not to that degree, you know. And, 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 and so um, it, it just makes no sense. It's this teeny little patch of land with hardly any people on it and hardly any worldwide. And, and yet there is this irrational hatred. And you see this even in the story from what, 2,500 years ago. They build this altar, tell them to worship it. If you look down at verse 17, I love this phrase. This is so important. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. They believe God was able to deliver them, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Okay? So they thought he was going to do it. They believed he could do it. They thought he was going to do it. But here's the key. But even if he does not, we follow him even during times when he does not. We all love the stories of when he does heal, when he does deliver, when he does do what we want him to do. But they said, you know what, Nebuchadnezzar, even if you throw us in there and we're instantly burned to a crisp, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. I want us to have that in our minds, that image of everybody bowing and the three men standing. And tonight, we're going to give you a chance to do that. Because really, the way we do that today is through baptism. You saw a couple of people baptize this service. And the the way Jesus says that we show that we stand when everybody else bows or we bow when everybody else stands is through baptism. And maybe that's why you're here this morning. It's not an accident that you just happen to be here and God's been tugging at your heart about this. Maybe you saw the people baptized at Fairplex or maybe you saw um, the people baptized today and say, you know, someday I gotta get around to doing that. Or maybe you've been baptized years ago but you wanna rededicate your life or you wanna rededicate your life with somebody else, a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance. Well, tonight's your chance for that at five o'clock at Claremont, we're going to have our service up there at Purpose Church at 5 o'clock. And then right when it's done, we're going to walk out to the patio and we're going to have those same kiddie pools that we had at the Fairplex. And what could be better than Baptists doing baptisms and we're going to have a barbecue? What could be better than that? The three Bs, Baptists, baptisms, and barbecues. If patio started with a B, we'd be just perfect out there. At any rate, we're just going to finish the service. We're going to go right out. You can either bring a change of clothes Bring family or friends with you or come alone. Um, and, and either bring a change of clothes or if you don't want to, just like we did at Fairplex, we'll have shorts and T-shirts and towels there for you. You just show up tonight. We'll have the service at five. As soon as it's done, right, right at six, we're just gonna walk out there. We're gonna have a barbecue out there. Pastor Jay's gonna be cooking up the barbecue and we're gonna watch people follow Jesus in baptism and it's just gonna be an awesome time. But it's gonna be your chance to do just like those three guys. Everybody else is bowing, but you will be standing because that's what baptism is. As punishment, they're thrown into the fiery furnace, but they're not killed. A fourth person is seen in the fire. Remember we say that there's always little clues uh, going on, uh, little, little hints here and there um, that are happening throughout Scripture that tell us how the story's gonna end? Well, here's one of them. 
It says, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, we believe this was either an angel or this was Jesus showing up B.C. And throughout the Old Testament, every once in a while, he shows up and says, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. Here he shows up and says, 500 years from now, I'm coming. And we believe that this is Jesus with them in the fire. And let me give you the good news Jesus will be with you in whatever fire or furnace you're in this coming week. Read the story of Daniel and the lion's den on your own. Let me just mention something about the prophecies of Daniel that you're going to read, because I love this stuff. Reason not, what, number 1,337 to know that this is a supernatural book. Do you know the dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel interpreted that dream is this very specific history of the next 500 years, from 500 B.C., until Jesus comes. And it gives us this overview of the Babylonian Empire followed by the Persians, followed by the Greeks, and followed by the Romans. And for years, critics of the Bible said that is just impossible. It had to have been written after the event. It's so specific, it had to have been written as history, not after the event, rather than prophecy before the event. And they did a couple of things. First of all, they said, you know what? It wasn't written around 530 B.C. It was written in 160 B.C. But even that wasn't early enough because it talks about the Romans. So they said, well, it's not talking about the Romans. That's really just another part of talking about the Greeks because the Romans didn't come around until 63 B.C. So even though we push it to the Maccabean period in 160 B.C., that's still not early enough. So it wasn't the Romans. It was the Greeks, and it was in 160 B.C. And then God did a miracle in 1946 called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And here we had linguistic evidence that this book was written when we believe it was in the 6th century B.C. And this was revealed to be not history, but prophecy. And for yet another time, this demonstrated this is no ordinary book. It's got God's fingerprints all over it. 